Well, I know I say this every week, but I mean it every week. It is a privilege to be here with you, to be able to gather together, to worship, to fellowship, to study God's word, uh, whether you're here on our Canandaigua campus, uh, in one of our venues here on our Canandaigua campus, uh, if you're online, uh, Hopewell campus, uh, welcome. Uh, it is just, uh, great to be able to study God's word together. Uh, we're in this series we're calling Ignite, and we're looking at the movement that Christ started nearly 2,000 years ago by his coming. Uh, his living example, his, his death, his resurrection, his commissioning of his church, his disciples, his followers, his ascension. And then last week we looked at the Holy Spirit coming upon Pentecost and really birthing the church, really birthing the movement um, that we've been looking at, that we're a part of if we're followers of Christ. And as we study the book of Acts, what we discover is really this unfolding of the Great Commission. Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And what we find in Acts is this historical account of how the church expanded from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And Acts covers really events that happened from the 30s AD to the 60s AD. So it's like a 30-year snapshot of history uh, that we look at in, in the book of Acts. And before we get into the actual passage we're going to look at this morning, I want to make sure we have context. When we study God's word, there, there's many guiding principles. We call them hermeneutics, many guiding principles of how we study God's word. And, and really one of the key principles is context is king. Context is king. In other words, as we study God's word, we don't simply want to open it up and point to a verse and sort of say, well, that must be what God has for us today. We want to understand the context of all the verses we look at in scripture to understand why they're there. And so if you bear with me a little bit, let me give a little context of what has led us up to our, our passage this morning from Acts 8, 1 through 4. In Acts 1, we have the promise of the Holy Spirit and, of course, the ascension of Christ. Luke explains that. Then in Acts chapter 2, we have the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and then Peter's sermon where 3,000 individuals come to Christ. Acts 4, Acts 3, we have the first physical healing mentioned in the book of Acts, as well as Peter preaching in Solomon's portico. Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are arrested, and they're on trial before the council, and the council tells them not to preach. And John and Peter respond and say, we have to listen to the God over man. And by the way, a very important uh, moment in, in the history of the church, because that sets really uh, the church's understanding uh, of what do we do when, when man's law violates God's law, well, it's really clear we go of God's law. Right, church? Come on now, that's another message. Peter and John are released, and, and, and there's this beautiful picture we get uh, of just the church growing and doing life together. Then Acts chapter 5, the church continues to grow and bear fruit, and the apostles are arrested, again, for preaching the gospel and released. And I love Luke's description in Acts 5.42. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that, it, that the Christ is Jesus. Acts 6, seven are chosen. They, they understand that in order for the church to be cared for, it's growing so rapidly, they got to expand the church leadership. And so they choose seven individuals who will help make sure that people are cared for and among the needs that exist within the, this growing church body. And Stephen is one of the seven. And we discover that Stephen, Stephen must be a pretty gifted evangelist and speaker, but in the midst of his ministry, he sees uh, falsely, and he's accused of blasphemy. Acts chapter 7. Here's Stephen. He's before his accusers, right? He's the captive, but in his mind, he realizes that they're sort of captive too. 
Like if they're gonna put him on trial, then, then they're there. He might as well take advantage of it. So he preaches the gospel to them, uh, which outrages them. And he's actually killed for being a follower of Christ. Stephen's the first recorded Christian martyr uh, in all of Christendom. And, and, and then we arrive at the passage in Acts 8. The events from Acts 1 to Acts 8 is basically a, a snapshot of a year. It's been a year in the life of the church. And so it's taken eight chapters for Luke to give us this picture of what's happening in this church that's in Jerusalem. Since Christ has ascended, the promise of the Holy Spirit has come, filled believers, the church is birthed. Great things are happening in Jerusalem. But if you remember, the Great Commission is, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the world. And so we see what happens in Jerusalem, but something's about to change. Look with me at our passage this morning. Acts 8, 1 through 4. And Saul approved of his, now who's the his? It's Stephen. And so Paul approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Persecution comes to the church in Jerusalem, and what's amazing is the church advances. It's interesting that the apostles don't leave Jerusalem. The other Christians scatter, but the apostles stay there, and we can make many assumptions why that is. But what we do know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that the apostles' continued presence in Jerusalem certainly does, does provide a stability to this young church and its mission. From the, this apostolic center in Jerusalem, the persecution is used to push an ever-expanding witness. And what we learn from our passage is that there's actually a connection between Stephen being martyred for his faith and this growth in the church because our, our passage reads this way. It says, on that day, persecution broke out. On that day, persecution broke out. Now, what's persecution? Let me define it for you. Persecution is harassing somebody in order to persuade or force someone to give up his religion or simply to attack somebody for religious reasons. It encompasses a wide range of activities from ridicule to social ostracism to occasional beatings to confiscation of property to imprisonment to execution. And I think many of you probably know, if not all of us know, that persecution still happens upon the body of Christ today all over the world. In fact, just down the street from our church at one of our universities, one student was, was being persecuted because of his personal religious beliefs and was told that he wouldn't be able to fully take part in the program that he was a part of. Thank God our legal system came through there, and he, he's now fully able to, to participate at that school. One of our schools are tax dollars paid for, by the way. But persecution happens, and, and sometimes it, it's, it's like that. It's an affront to, to sort of maybe our, 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 our degree searching, but other times it could cost people their life. There's an organization. Uh, called Open Doors, that every year puts out a report, every few years actually, puts out a report of, of the state of the church as far as persecution in the world. And most of the stats I'm about to read to you come out of 2019, and it's, it's only the numbers of, of persecuted believers in 50 of the top violators of this. And so I want you to keep that in mind, because these aren't the numbers of total persecution. This is the numbers within those 50 highest countries which are persecuting Christians. 245 million Christians worldwide experience high levels of persecution in those 50 countries. There's more than that, 
But that's those 50 countries. One in nine Christians worldwide experienced high levels of persecution. That's a general rule of thumb. We were to count ourselves off like we did in school. Remember those days? One, two, and, and, and all the nines go here. If we did that, one in nine, think about it, look around the room, one in nine of the people in this room would, would be persecuted. Unbelievable to me. 14%, the rise in number of Christians in the top 50 countries who are being persecuted. In other words, it's growing. It's not becoming less. 4,136 Christians killed for their faith in 2019 alone in those 50 countries. More elsewhere, that's those 50 countries. That's recorded, by the way. 2,625 detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, or imprisoned in those countries in a given year. 1,266 church buildings attacked in that year. 11 countries scoring in the extreme level for the persecution of Christians. Now, this is, this is extraordinarily disappointing because five years ago there was only one, and that was North Korea. North Korea, by the way, for the 18 years in a row uh, has the dishonor of being the country that is the worst to live in as a believer. 18 years in a row. Think about that. Every month, and again, this is just these 50 top. Every month, 105 churches are attacked, burned, or vandalized. Every single month. And every day, 11 Christians are killed. And that's just in these countries. Think about it. I have a spiritual habit of every morning. I have, I have two apps on my phone. One helps me pray for the persecuted church. And, and, and it just... Two things happen. Number one, I get to be identified with them a little bit through prayer, okay? And that to me is important every morning to be able to lift up my brothers and sisters in Christ who are living for Jesus in places where it's much more difficult than it is here. And then secondly, it challenges me because it really makes me think, well, what's my excuse, right? I mean, if I'm praying for these people who are literally, uh, their life is in jeopardy, and maybe it's not physical. Maybe it's this. Can you imagine that they're not going to kill them, but they say, you can't work. Well, that just means they're, they're killing them. It's just going to take longer. They, they starve. And, and, and yet they're still standing up for Jesus. The other group I pray for, another app, is those who live in countries that are unreached. You know what I mean? They have no missionaries, no witness of the gospel. Many of those individuals I pray for also, surprisingly, or not surprisingly, are in groups of, of countries where there's high persecution. And we understand that persecution is on the rise even here in our own country. We need to be aware of this. We need to be praying for each other. But let's get back to our passage. So we're told that Saul... Now, by the way, you probably know him as Paul. This individual who's persecuting the church, who's killing Christians, who was there. When it says he gave, uh, he, he was a leader. And he said, yeah, you can kill Stephen. That's what it means in that text when he's standing there. This is the man who Jesus chooses when he comes to know him as Lord and Savior, to be a Gentile, uh, apostle to the Gentiles, and, and to, to be a missionary. And he writes like half the books of the New Testament. Here's the good news, that when the gospel infiltrates a person's life, it doesn't matter what you've done, where you come from, he can use you to do some pretty amazing things. Amen, church? I love that about Saul, Paul. Yeah. But look at Luke's description. So Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Luke uses the word ravaging. He wants us to have a particular word picture so we can understand what's really happening. And the word picture is of an animal mangling its prey. It reminds me of, of the description of our enemy that says that uh, but he, roars, he goes around like a lion roaring, right? Seeking for someone to devour. And this is what Saul's doing. We gain a, an image of the severity of the persecution. So let, let's make sure we understand the picture here. The church is growing like crazy. 
People are being saved. Lives are being changed. I mean, all heaven is breaking out in Jerusalem. Then persecution comes upon the church. But something interesting occurs. The scattering of believers from Jerusalem creates really this band of missionaries, not refugees. In other words, they, they don't leave as, 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 as just mere victims of persecution. Everywhere they go, they're missionaries. Like they're spreading the word of God. In fact, uh, Luke picks a particular word here when he uses the word scatter. In the Greek language, there are several words for scatter. One of them is just scatter, like they just, they just would have left Jerusalem. But he picks an agricultural term. The, the word picture, again, he wants us to understand. This word scatter there is, is, is a person scattering seed on the ground. So we seek a scatter. They're running for their life, which is probably partially true. But they're also scattering on purpose. They're, they're scattering with a purpose. I think a pastor Chris's message a couple of weeks ago where he talked about the Great Commission, did an excellent job uh, sharing with us what the Great Commission is really about. As they were going, as they were fleeing for their life, what are they doing? They're making disciples. They're still living on purpose. And Judea and Samaria is the second two theaters of the Great Commission fulfillment. What? To reach the world. And what really is startling to me is a gospel born by the spirit-filled Christians uh, bringing life to them. The deaf can't even stop it. Like this message, death can't even stop it. The fear of death isn't even stopping it. And as we work through Acts then, we, we really understand that, that when, we, when we look at our going and making disciples, making disciples as we go, as we look at the scattering, but there's a deep theology of suffering. Just understand that Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. But he doesn't stop there, right? That'd be sort of depressing. What's he say? but take heart, I have overcome the world. Many a believer, when they have a difficult day, season in their life, they think one of two things. Either they have done something wrong or God has given up on them. And yet the word of God says, neither is necessarily true. God certainly hasn't given up on you. That's not true. But it could be not that you've done something wrong, just the fact we live in a messed up world. That's good news, right? No. The good news is, but God is with us. Amen, church? Now, here's the problem. Many people would rather hear a gospel that's health, wealth, and prosperity. Here's the problem. It's a lie. But the gospel teaches we still live in a fallen world, but we can do so victoriously if we trust God. The victorious Christian life is trusting God no matter what the circumstances. It doesn't mean we don't hit difficulty. It just means we can be victorious in the midst of it. In this world, you'll face trouble, but take heart. Who's overcome the world? God has. Who's in us? The Spirit of God, right? Think about it. And, and God, therefore, is not inactive as, as his children share in the sufferings of Christ. He actually feels our pain. In fact, here's Saul again, his conversion experience, Acts chapter 9. And, and, and Jesus says to Saul, why are you persecuting me? I find it interesting because Saul is persecuting the church, right? But Jesus says, no, no, when you persecute them, you persecute me. Any parents out there? You mess with me, and trust me, it, the hair on the back of my neck goes up. You mess with my kids, and I need a lot of Jesus to control myself. Ever been there? My mom was the most gentle person I ever knew unless she messed with her kids. And then Mama Bear came out, and it was never a pretty picture. My youngest has had many, many surgeries in his life because of being born with a bilateral cleft lip and palate. And I'll tell you, there's not a surgery that he hasn't had that as a parent I haven't sat there and thought, man, if I would have a thousand of those for him if I could. And you can't, right? 
So I said, God, give him strength. Give me strength. Can I be honest with you? He's a strong person. God's made him strong. So God's like, oh, he's got it. It's you, Craig, that's the coward. I'll give you the strength you need. You'll make it through this. And he's faithful. Our Heavenly Father loves us. He's with us. And there's a, a whole other message when you say, well, why is the world still so messed up? Simply put, Peter gives us insight in one of his letters. He says, God is not slow in coming back. He waits so that people will come to Jesus. In other words, if, if he, when Jesus comes back, it's like game over. You've either accepted him or you haven't. Because of his love for people, he waits. And many times we come to Christ and say, well, Jesus, come back now, forgetting I'm glad he didn't come back before I came to Christ. Come on now, right? Thanks for waiting. And then we become a Christian. We say, stop waiting. You know, no, no, he loves us. He loves us. He's patient. What Luke presents for us is a glimpse into the victory that God's about to bring out of tragedy. Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And I love how commentators like Barclay write about this. Uh, Barclay is very direct. He says, this man who, who understands church history, understands theology, he says, this is one of the greatest events in the history of humanity. I'm not sure if you were there and you would, you would see it that way. If persecution broke out and now you're leaving the place you knew. And, you know, Jerusalem was a great place at that time because it was like a, a continuous summer camp, you know? And, and all of a sudden persecution comes and they, they got to leave and they're, they're out in the world. And, and, and did they see what a, what a monumental moment it was for humanity? I'm sure they didn't, but we look back and we know it was because if the church had stayed in Jerusalem, we would not be believers. But God uses persecution, and I think the enemy caused the persecution. I think the enemy thought, I'll get them, I'll just persecute them. And God says, well, that's okay, then they're going to go all over, and they're going to have more people know Jesus. You can't outthink and outplay God, right? You just can't do it. But what we see really in scriptures and through the story is really some lessons on suffering that we need to wrap our mind around if we're really truly going to be a part of this movement that was ignited by Christ 2,000 years ago. And the first lesson is this, it's on suffering and fullness. On this occasion, like many recorded in Acts, we see that when the, God's children suffer for the gospel, God reveals himself in some recognizable ways that gives them the courage to press on. Ever been there? There's a uh, writer, uh, ancient book, uh, he wrote The Dark Night of the Soul. Uh, yeah, an encouraging title. St. John of the Cross, he wrote Dark Night of the Soul. I'll sum up the book for you in like 30 seconds. It's in the difficult times that we truly grow as believers. It's in the difficult times. In other words, if you, if you want to know what it means to be filled with God, be put in a situation where you have nothing but him. Ever been there? Like on a good day, you go, oh, Lord, direct my steps. But we live as if we got it. Right? On the mountaintop, we're like, you know, God, we need you. But, but there's something in our spirit that goes, but if you need to help someone else out, that's okay. I'm having a good day. God help us, but it's true. But in the valley, when you're physically exhausted and emotionally exhausted, even spiritually depleted at times, ever been there? Dark night of the soul. And you realize all you have is God, and you lean on him, and you realize he's all you need. You're filled. And it's only through suffering that we can experience that understanding that when people say that, you know, Craig, uh, God's your crutch. I go, no, he's my life support. He's my everything. I need him every day. Some days I recognize it more, but I need him every day. 
to lead me and guide me and fill me. The second lesson we learn over and over again in Scripture is that this idea of suffering, and in the New Testament, suffering, sharing in the, in the suffering of Christ, this idea that we suffer, but we share in the suffering of Christ. Christ is a suffering Savior. Think about that. I mean, our Lord came to die. There's a mission for you. He's a suffering Savior. And if we're truly to be like him, then we need to suffer. There's a depth of union with Christ that comes only through suffering. And, and here's something amazing. Not only do we share in Christ's suffering, but again, he's, he shares in, in ours. And so when we go through difficult times, remember that dark night of the soul, we know we're there. If we keep our eyes on Jesus, and by the way, there's the caveat, because I've gone through difficult times and not kept my eyes on Jesus, and, and it leads me to bad places. Ever been there? That's when we feel abandoned. He hasn't abandoned us. We've abandoned him. But when we keep our eyes on him, there's a caveat that we can go in and say, this is going to be a blessing because I'm going to be closer to Jesus. Not that we want him. That would make you sick, by the way. We don't seek valleys, right? But we do understand that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, the psalmist writes, Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because why? He's with me. And, and, and anyone plus God is a majority. God is with me. I feel like this is death, but God is with me, and God is life. I, I like this story. John Wesley, he's, he's out preaching, and he's preaching on a message. And he writes in one of his journals that, like, like he didn't mean to say it, but, but in the midst of this message, it just bursted out of his mouth. And he said to the people, the best thing of all is God is with us. Is that not the great summary of the gospel? is that when we're in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, that he is indeed with us, we're never alone, that his strength is sufficient, that we can't find peace in ourselves, but he is our peace, that when we can't find, he is our strength, he is our power, he is our comforter. Third thing, suffering and evangelism and discipleship. The persecution that followed Stephen's death served as a catalyst for spreading the gospel. The scattered church is a missional church, and, and God uses persecution and suffering to advance the gospel. Again, you can't outplay God. We understand that sometimes evangelism uh, provokes persecution, while often persecution really brings about greater evangelism. What do I mean by that? That many times that, that when pressure comes upon the believer or a church, it, it's the result of God doing something and the culture around them not liking that. It was the, the description in Acts. These believers have come here who are turning the world upside down. You know why? Because those who were making false idols were going out of business. Brothels were being closed. You know, they weren't liking that. It's interesting. They say turning the world upside down, which if it's already upside down, means they were turning it right side up. I love it. And we see that. It's all about keeping our focus on Jesus. When difficulties come to a believer, we handle them again in one of two ways. We either sit back and go, well, this is too difficult. We make excuses why we can't be, why we can't do. Or we realize that the enemy is working so hard, there must be something good around the corner, and that just motivates us to do more. See, if we already realize the world's a messed up place, and a bad day is sort of what we sort of understand sometimes comes, and then we can go into that bad day and say, you know what, but God, you can do something good even in the midst of the bad. Excuses start to fall away. I don't know about you, but, but I've become really good at making excuses. Like you practice over the years, and the older you get, the better you get at it. 
And I go back to Pastor Chris's excellent message a couple weeks ago. You're to make disciples as you're going. So it says that here's the thing. Well, God, I'm really tired. I'm not really feeling that well, but that's okay. Well, you're not tired and feeling really well. Just make disciples. Right? God, I don't think I know enough. Well, that's good. And you're not knowing enough. Get to know more. And while you don't know enough, just go out there and make disciples. Throw any excuse out there. And God goes, am I not bigger than that? Every excuse I make is my failings. You ever notice that? You make excuses, it's your failings, right? And God says, but I've come to, to, to overcome those things. To use you. Can you imagine Paul? You want to use me, Jesus? Do you realize I've been killing your people? Yeah, but now you're one of my people. Well, they might not like me. Well, they probably won't for a while, Paul. You've done so. It's going to take them a little bit to trust you. And by the way, it does. <laughs> if it weren't for a good old Barnabas, he says, I'll take them and do something with them. Uh, I don't know what would happen. We need so many Barnabas, don't we? Someone who believes it. He said, no, 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 no. You're looking at what you've done. You look at how you're seeing yourself. You're looking at how others see you. I'm looking at what I can do through you. Paul writes these encouraging words to his young protege, Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I call that the promise in Scripture none of us memorize or claim on a daily basis. But it's true. If living a godly life leads me, we need to identify with Jesus, even in his suffering, and that growth happens in those suffering times. And as James writes, James writes it's through trials that we, we learn how to persevere and trust and grow in our faith. The desire to live the Christ-like life, and again, what do we mean by that? We mean becoming like Jesus in character and love and purpose and priorities is the believer's highest ambition. And those who live such a life will often meet opposition from the people who want to continue to sin and are threatened by the believer's faith. Have you experienced that? Maybe you came to Christ and your family went, oh, you just became weird. You might have been weird before, but now you're weird in a different way, right? Sometimes when we're growing like Jesus, people don't like to see that. They don't want to be reminded. A believer is a frustrating person unless someone else wants to become a believer. Right? I, I, I use this, verges, this verbiage quite a bit around, around crosswinds. We gather to scatter. You've heard me say it. And, and I often think about this moment in salvation history where persecution could have stamped out the church. However, the church flourishes. It has expands from Jerusalem to the ends of the world. See, when we gather here on a weekly basis, whether you're watching online, Hobo Campus, or whether you're here, when we, when we gather like this, we're here to put the glory of God on display. Really what we do is it's, it's a mission conference of sorts. Because everyone in this room who's a follower of Jesus, you're an everyday missionary in an everyday mission field. You may not have accepted it. You may not be, you may be walking in it, but you are called to it. And so this is what we do. This is like a missions conference. Now, don't get me wrong. If you're here and you're investigating the things of Christ, when we put this service together, when we pray over it, we, we see it as an evangelistic component too. This is a safe place to come and, and hear what it means to be a follower of Jesus. In fact, it's a safe place to come and watch followers of Jesus. And by the way, all of us who are believers, people are watching us. And see our journey. We're not perfect. We're messy, but we're a sacred mess because God's doing something in us. We're being perfected by him. If you want to go to a perfect place and come to Jesus and die, and then you get to go. But on this earth, we're, not per we're being perfected. Amen, church? You know, when people say, well, you know, I'm not going to that church. There's so many hypocrites. Well, great, join the hypocrites. Become a Christian and grow. 
Don't be one, but if you mean, man, that person's a believer and I just saw them make a mistake in their walk, well, join the club. Our goal is to make less mistakes as we grow in Jesus. Amen? And that's, that's what the church is. We're a bunch of missionaries gathering together, and you come and investigate. The other group we really do put, put the service together for are the missionaries, for you, who are Jesus Christ followers, who go into a messy world and live for Jesus. I mean, what we walk into isn't all bad, but isn't all good sometimes, right? Heartache happens. Now, I'll tell you the group we don't put the service for. I wasn't going to say this last service, and I did, and I thought, well, I, I, if I say it last, I'll do it this one. We don't put the service together for people who don't either want to seek Jesus or grow in him. Getting awful quiet. I mean, you're welcome to be here, but you're going to be very unhappy because we, we do it for people who don't want to who aren't even who aren't seeking Jesus or aren't growing in Jesus. They become critical over things that just don't matter. And can I be honest with you? Those things bore me to death. Like I'll be conscientious, I'll smile, I'll write you back, I'll talk to you. I just won't hang around you much because I'm living on mission, and we're living on mission. You're just going to be unhappy here because you're going to bring up something petty and we're going to go, who cares? People are dying and going to hell. People are hurting and need love. There's a need my neighbor has. We're going to meet it. I don't have time for that. You say, but that doesn't sound like Jesus. Oh, no, no, that's exactly who Jesus is. That's exactly who Jesus is. So what are three essential insights that allow us to lean into those other truths? First of all, we must walk in the leading and power of the Holy Spirit. We talked about that a little bit last week, but it's so, it's so important. Life isn't always easy, but the victorious, victorious Christian life is what? Trusting God no matter what the circumstances. And so each and every day throughout the day, I have to say, Holy Spirit, lead me and guide me, especially in suffering. I need you. Help me keep my eyes on you. And when I drift, draw me back to you. Second, we need to identify with Christ in his death, resurrection, yes, in his suffering. One of the things I love is mysteries. I really do. I love crime dramas. I get into those type of things. Maybe you don't, I do. Um, and if you've ever watched one, you'll see a, a lineup. Now, I'm not going to ask how many of you have been in a lineup, uh, but, 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 but I haven't yet, and uh, who knows, right? But, uh, but, but I love watching it because, you know, even if you were in a lineup, it doesn't mean you were the bad one because, you know, sort of, anyway, you got it. But the lineup, and I love even the parodies where all of a sudden, like, a light will come on. They're like, you know, there was a commercial a while back where the light came on, and they could see the person who was supposed to, like, identify the person. It's like, uh-oh, you know. And, but you're behind that, that glass wall thing, and you're looking, and what if you were in a lineup, and all of a sudden, like, they brought people in who've observed your life? Wouldn't it be super cool if all of a sudden one of them said, that's him. That's Jesus. Like we're in this lineup and, and those around us are, are seeing the character of Christ formed in us and the love of Christ growing in us. So this purpose being lived out in his priorities. That's a lineup I want to be guilty in. And that's what God calls us to. Be the Holy Spirit's power to be, to be identified with Jesus in all things. And in our suffering, to be able to say, you know what? This isn't fun, but God is good. And I'm going to become more like him through this. Jesus suffered. Why would I think I won't suffer? In this world, we'll have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. The third thing is the fruit of, growing, uh, the fruit of a growing disciple is multiplication, even amidst suffering. We've looked at this, so I won't, I won't camp here except to say this, that in our scattering, we're never dis destroyed when we keep our eyes on Jesus. We're more than conquerors. The church has been birthed 
out his suffering. Jesus suffered. The early church suffered. Yes, we suffer. But when God shows up in our suffering, it's a witness to the world around us of how powerful God is. See, it's an amazing thing that God at times brings us out of the suffering. How many of you enjoy that? Do you know what's more miraculous? When God shows up in the midst of it, puts his loving arm around us, and says, I'm not just going to get you through this, but if you keep your eyes on me, I'm going to make you more than a conqueror in this thing. We gather to scatter. John Wesley put it this way. Do all the good you can by all the means you can in all the ways you can in all the places you can at all the times you can to all the people you can as long as ever you can. That's pretty good. As you're going, as you scatter, make disciples. How about you? Are you walking in the power and leading of the Holy Spirit? Do you identify with Jesus? Is he your all? Now, by the way, we grow in that, don't we? Like, Jesus, you're my all. Then an hour later, I go, by the way, I need you to be my all again, so I'm taking it back. Is the fruit of multiplication evident in your life? I'm encouraged and challenged by these other words of Wesley. Yeah, I've been looking at Wesley a little bit lately. He said this, Let the Lord light you on fire with passion, and people will come from miles around to watch you burn. Lord, light us up. Light us up. Here's my prayer for us. My prayer for us as crosswinds is as we scatter, we'll share the gospel in word and deed in our homes, neighborhoods, schools, workplaces, throughout the region. Lord, ignite us. Ignite us. Meet us where we're at and ignite us. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much just for uh, this amazing example we find in, in, in the book of Acts. We, we wouldn't blame that early church in the midst of that persecution for having all the excuses why they couldn't be what you've created them to be and, what they, and to not be able to do what you've called them to do. And yet, what they do is, in the midst of it, they go, well, you, you said we should make disciples as we're going, and right now we're just going quicker than we were earlier. This persecution's uh, causing us to leave this place, this city, to leave this sort of what was a summer camp experience for many of them. And we're going to go into the world to, to unknown places and among unknown people, and we're going to share with them the God who knows them and died for them and offers life to them. And Lord, I pray that, that we would go in the same way, that we thank you that we're able to gather, and our gathering is so important. We're called, we're called to do this. But as we scatter throughout this region, Lord God, may you light us on fire with your passion, that people wouldn't just come and watch us burn, but they would catch on fire themselves for you. Would you do a work across this region in us and through us that only you can do? That people would know your love, that people would know your compassion, that people would know your justice, that people would know your salvation. God, I pray even now, if there's anyone in this room who's yet to receive you as Lord and Savior, why not? In the quietness of our heart, right now, thank you for dying on the cross for our sins, being resurrected for your salvation. But for each of us who are your followers, may we put nothing before you, no person, no thing. You're our all. We choose you, God. And Lord, would you help us practically live out of that? 
Thank you, Lord God, that we're not what we used to be. We understand we're not what we ought to be. We're not what you used to be. We're works in progress, but we always be works in progress for you. Becoming more like Jesus and his character, his love, his purpose, his priorities for your glory, for the hope of those around us. I pray for the person even now who's going through that valley, that dark night of the soul. May, Lord God, you encourage them and we encourage one another. Keep our eyes on you because the victorious Christian life is trusting you no matter what the circumstances. And although in this world we'll face trouble, we can take heart because you have overcome the world. Thank you for loving us so extravagantly and so completely. In Jesus' name.